The Da Da Di Da Da Code by Robert Rankin. Chapter 37. A convoy took to rumbling through the nighttime streets of London. It rumbled up from an underground car park somewhere slightly to the north of Mornington Crescent Underground Station, and it took to its rumbling with vigor. In the lead vehicle sat Constable Cartwright, next to the driver, Constable Rogers. Constable Rogers had volunteered for the driving job, and as he was the only one in the truck who had a full driver's license, the job was here. Constable Rogers had volunteered for the driving job, and as he was the only one in the truck who had a full driving license, the job was his. Constable Cartwright keyed Gunnersbury Park into the sat-nav. Head that way, he told Rogers. Constable Rogers came and went. Came and went, went he. Oh my God, went Constable Cartwright. Would you look at yourself? Constable Rogers glanced down at his hands and saw a hands-free steering wheel. Yeek, he went. I thought I was driving. Where have my hands gone? Where has all of me gone? Oh, I'm back now. No, I'm not. It's the invisibility suit, said the suddenly enlightened Constable Cartwright. Every time we go over a bump, it switches on and you vanish. It's really rather good. I don't want to end up like Deputy Dog. Do you think it's safe? Constable Cartwright made so-so gestures with the fingers of his right hand. But as the truck went over another bump, his fingers vanished as well. Fingers, fingers, fingers. Fingers of Johnny's left hand upon the neck of the wondrous guitar. Fingers of Andy Evans upon the big buttons of the big recording desk equipment. Fingers of Tom gripping his drumsticks. Fingers of Gaz on the mic. A finger on the trigger. Two fingers of red eye from the optic. A finger of fudge is just enough. What? There was a bit of hush from the crowd as Johnny fingered the guitar. History has it that Robert Johnson recorded 29 different compositions. There are 42 separate recordings of these 29. It might surprise many to know that the lyrics to Apocalypse Blues, penned in Johnson's own hand, actually exist. They are stored amongst a few of his other personal effects in one of the storerooms beneath the big house at Gunnersbury Park. In a shoebox on a shelf next to the Protein Man's printing machine. These lyrics have never before been published, and sadly, they cannot be published now, due to copyright reasons. Author's Note You can, however, download the track along with the complete soundtrack for this book. For details, see page 319. End note. Please don't sing, said Constable Cartwright. I'm trying to jig about with the sat-nav but the handbook is very complicated and I'm finding it difficult to concentrate. I'm not singing, said Constable Rogers. The music is coming out of the radio. Constable Cartwright jigged with the radio. But the radio isn't switched on, he said. But that's where it's coming from. Listen. Constable Cartwright put his ear to the dashboard radio and listened. It is, he said. It's blues, said Constable Rogers. I like a bit of blues, me. Mind you, I like a song about a four-legged friend even more. I like anything that goes da-da-dee-da-da-dee-da-da-dee-da-bonanza, said Constable Cartwright. But how can that radio be playing when it's not switched on? And what is that blues song all about? He listened some more. Sounds a bit biblical, he said. Constable Rogers came and went. Constable Cartwright did likewise. Ah, said Constable Cartwright at length. This is an extremely smart piece of sat-nav. See what it does here? Constable Rogers took a look. And it only takes a moment, doesn't it? That lack of concentration when behind the wheel. 
the truck went over a big, big bump, and all of its occupants vanished. What was that? Constable Cartwright glanced into the wing mirror. I think we just ran over a vicar on a bike. Well, you were talking about the Bible. Well, keep your eyes on the road. What I was going to say was that this satnav must be brand new military hardware. Very, said Constable Rogers. Why are we that funny color? It's nighttime. Nighttime vision camera on the spy satellite, I suppose. It's infrared. That's our heat signature. And those? Constable Rogers did hasty pointings. People, said Constable Cartwright. And a dog. Look. And you can even see the people in their houses. Here. I think there's a couple having a shag in that house. Constable Rogers nearly had the truck off the road. Please look where you're driving, Constable. I'm going to do a little fast forward on the sat-nav. Have a look at our objective, Gunnersbury Park. Do you realize that with this we can actually see if anyone is skulking about in the park at night? It will make our job pretty easy, eh? Constable Rogers nodded. But as he had momentarily vanished from sight, this nodding went unseen by Constable Cartwright. Unseen by the crowd at the middleman, Johnny Hooker's face was not a thing of beauty. It was turned away from the audience. Johnny was speaking urgently. To Paul. We can't play this number, said Johnny. We just can't do it. Of course we can, said Paul. It looks simple enough. The chords, anyway. Your standard 12-bar blues. It's a lot more than that. Johnny could read music well enough, and even the first glance had told him that this was no standard 12-bar blues. This is Robert Johnson's last number, said Johnny to Paul. His his 30th composition, the one he never intended to play because he knew that once he played it, the devil would come and claim his soul. And he played it here, and the devil did, said Paul. I've heard that tale. Everyone's heard that tale. They have, said Johnny. They have, said Paul. But do I believe it? No, I don't. Do I believe that this is really Johnson's last composition? No, I don't. Do I believe you are holding Robert Johnson's guitar? No, you don't, suggested Johnny. No, I don't, said Paul. But something special is going on, isn't it? But something special is going on, isn't it, Johnny? Something special is going on with you, with your life. Things are beginning to mean something for you. You told me earlier that you've never felt so alive in all your life. It's true, said Johnny. Then play the damn song, Johnny. Play like you've never played. Let Andy Evans get it all on tape. Let's do something with our lives, eh, Johnny? Grasp the nettle. Go the whole hog. All that kind of business. Johnny Hooker thought about this. The crowd began to boo. Are we going to play this number or what? asked Gaz. The mob is growing surly. Johnny looked down at the wondrous guitar. We play, said Johnny Hooker. It's a bit like playing a really advanced computer game, said Constable Cartwright, jigging about with the sat-nav. Ah, yes. See here? No, don't see here. I'll tell you about it. I've got Gunnersbury Park up on the screen now, and, yep, looks clear of people. Just some little heat signatures. Here. Ah, yes, I can zoom in. Squirrels. Squirrels in the trees. How cool is this? Constable Rogers agreed that it was cool. After all, squirrels are cool. Everyone knows that. They're not just rats with good PR. Oh yeah, said Constable Cartwright. Really cool. I'm panning back a bit here. Oh, look at the... No, don't look. Just listen. 
There's a lot of activity here. A gathering of people looks like in a single-story dwelling. No, not dwelling. Pub. It's a pub full of people near the park. A band's playing, too. This is really brilliant. That music is playing again through the turned-off radio, said Constable Rogers. It's louder now, and it sounds like a full band rather than just a single singer. Yes, said Constable Cartwright. It does. How odd. But hold on. This is odd, too. He jigged and he tweaked at the sat-nav. It's gone on the blink. No, it hasn't. It's working okay. But the pub. Damn me, look at that. The temperature is dropping in the pub. Dropping right down to zero, it looks like. And yes, it was true. Within the middleman, music lovers were beginning to pat at themselves, hug at their arms, and marvel at their breath as it steamed from their mouths. Andy Evans <sighs> upon his fingers. Someone leave the fridge door open? He asked of no one in particular. Cold as the new cool. I'll have to remember that. I have to get this recorded. I've never heard anything quite like this before. Now that is weird, went Constable Cartwright. It seems as if the entire pub has gone sub-zero. All except for the band. And the band and the band. In a blur, as if accelerated, many times any normal speed, above and beyond. Impossible. Johnny Hooker's fingers flew across the fingerboard. Tom's fingers a blur, drumsticks moving too fast to be seen. The bass notes of Paul, a high-pitched whine, and heat, and superheat, and rush of fire, and shriek, and a terrible rush of power, and from afar, growing louder and louder. The sounds of what might that be? Laughter? Terrible laughter? And fingers, 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 and small hairy fingers tearing the plugs that powered the amps from the wall sockets and implode. Chapter 38 These were not, however, those very bow bells that the Cockneys rejoice in the hearing thereof. Rather, these bow bells were an approximation, an impersonate, an impersonation, an imitation, a vocalized rendition that issued from the black-pursed lips of Mr. Giggles. And to this, Johnny Hooker awoke. In his cozy bed, in his cozy room, in his house, which, although not altogether cozy, boasted at least an inside toilet and a view on a clear day from the rear, clean over the graveyard to the M4 flyover beyond. Johnny Hooker awoke. He yawned and made tut-tuttings with his mouth and shushed at Mr. Giggles. He snuggled down and pulled his cozy blanket, or blanky as he had called it when a child, close up about himself to enjoy that final bit of snuggling down that precedes the getting up. Rise and shine, thou sleepy head, cooed Mr. Giggles. Shut up and leave me alone, said Johnny, reply ever ready. Yes, you are right, said the monkey boy, and, doffing his fez, he did a small jig and called, Sleep on, sweet prince, from the foot of the bed. Johnny Hooker made a rumbling bottom sound, which is permissible when you're in your own bed. Sunlight flowed in upon Johnny, between curtains that should have been closed. Johnny nestled lower, pulling Blanky over his head. And then Johnny Hooker flung back the covers and jerked to a sit in his bed. "'What am I doing here?' he asked. "'Sleeping?' said Mr. Giggles. "'But here?' "'I fail to understand the question.' "'Oh, what a beautiful day!' 
Yes, it is a beautiful day. And Johnny Hooker squinted, rubbed his eyes, and squinted once again. I'm home in my bed, said Johnny. Home in my bed right here. As ever the master of deduction, said Mr. Giggles, replacing his fez and adjusting his colorful waistcoat. Did I ever tell you where I acquired this waistcoat? he asked. It's a fascinating tale, and one, should you ever wish to pin your autobiography as a cautionary tale of misspent youth, that you might wish to include, to enliven almost any chapter. What am I doing here? The eternal question, the question that elevates man above the animals. But why are you asking it now? Johnny Hooker scratched at his head. And what happened to my hair? He arose and did stumblings to the dresser table. He had never wanted it in his room in the first place. It was far too girly. But his mother had insisted that there was no place else to put it. Her bedroom being packed to the gunwales with war surplus field rations that she was hoarding as a hedge against a forthcoming apocalypse. Johnny stumbled to his dressing table and viewed his image in the beveled mirror that surmounted its rear. What has happened to my hair? he asked once again, although with greater emphasis upon the word has this time. Is it thinning? Mr. Giggles asked. For if it is, be grateful. Girls really do go for men with thinning hair. It makes them feel superior, you see. They just hate men with big hair, especially men who are prettier than they are. Will you please shut up? I thought you wanted to talk about your hair. I do. What's happened to it? I give up, said Mr. Giggles. What has? Well, it's all gone flat on the top, as if I've been wearing a cap, and I never wear a cap. And blimey, what's happened to my face? I give up, said Mr. Giggles once more. It's got at least about a five-day growth of whiskers. Mr. Giggles did exaggerated startlings and equally exaggerated starings. He cocked his head upon one side and cupped his hirsute chin in one hand. You have at least five hairs on your chin, he observed, if that is what you mean. It is, said Johnny, and he examined the sparseness of beard. Do you think I've got a bit of a goatee going on here? he asked. No, said Mr. Giggles, I don't. You might want to put some cream on that and have a tomcat lick it off, as we used to say in the Navy when I was flying bombers with Monty at the Somme. Hangover, said Mr. Giggles. What a night you had last night, eh? Johnny Hooker peered at his own reflection. It had a distant quality to it, a certain vagueness, a certain lack of clarity. Last night, he whispered. Pardon me? Speak up, said Mr. Giggles. Last night, said Johnny. I can't remember anything about last night. Lucky you, Mr. Giggles bobbed about, sparring with the air. All that drink and bad behavior... You're barred from the middleman, by the way, for a week. O'Fagan said that he will shoot you dead if you show your face before a week is up. Barred for a week? said Johnny. Tell me, what did I do? said Johnny. What on earth could I have done to get barred for a week? asked Johnny, too. He caught you making the beast with two backs with his missus. He never did. Johnny Hooker did gothings at his reflection. I had it off with O'Fagan's wife? Apparently so, said Mr. Giggles. I didn't look. Golly, said Johnny, giving his reflected self an admiring grin. She's a damn fine-looking woman, Mrs. O. It's a pity I can't remember it. 
sort of balances out that, doesn't it? said Mr. Giggles. The times you get lucky while drunk and actually have sex with a good-looking woman and then not be able to recall it in the morning. As against the times when you'll be drunk and have sex with a really ugly woman and remember that all too well in the morning, once you sober up. And that's another odd thing, said Johnny. If I got that drunk last night, then how come I don't have a hangover this morning? You're complaining about that? I'm not complaining. I'm just puzzled. I always get a ripping hangover when I've been out on the lash. Well, let's just hope it will kick in later if that will cheer you up. And I should be hungry. Johnny Hooker felt at his belly. Ah, he said, I am hungry. Then why don't we just go down and have breakfast? Because, said Johnny, I appear to be naked. Well observed, said Mr. Giggles. Put on your dressing gown, why don't you? Johnny Hooker glanced all around and about. And where are my clothes? He now asked. Will you stop with the questions already? Mr. Giggles turned up his pinky palms. Have some breakfast, have a cup of tea, lighten up. I'm perplexed, and Johnny shook his head. Mr. Giggles made further bow bell sounds, interspersed with Big Ben chimes, and small change being rattled in the pocket of a Protestant. Johnny shook his head more at these untoward noises. But he did put on his dressing gown, and he did go down to breakfast. Raising her head from the bothering bucket, and clicking a further good morning in Morse with her dentures. You told him that you'd like your eggs unfertilized, said Johnny. Uncanny, said Johnny's mum. It's almost as if you were there yourself, which you were, if truth be told, but half of you was still inside the vicar. Stop now, please, mum, said Johnny. So boiled or fried? I can recommend these boiled ones. I almost have them defragged with a chamois. Fried, thank you, mum. And Johnny Hooker's mum took to fussing at the stove. You can read the paper if you want, she told Johnny. Johnny gave his head a shake. Paper? He whispered. This is getting weirder by the moment. But the newspaper was there, folded upon the tablecloth. So Johnny Hooker unfolded it and gave the front page a good looking over. The paper was Brantford's Sunday Mercury. The headline shouted, Crisis in Middle East. World stands trembling upon the brink of WW3. Can top-secret talk save the planet from threat of total annihilation? Johnny Hooker viewed this paper. This is Sunday's paper, he said. Ah, said his mother, turning partially from the stove, a kind of half-hip swivel with an ankle-turn accompaniment. That would be, said she, because today is Sunday. Sunday? Johnny Hooker mulled this concept over. Today is Sunday, said he. Sunday? he queried. Sunday? he questioned. Sunday? The Sabbath, said his mother, who was considering the taking up of a religion to augment her already chosen hobbies of crown green bowls, knitting, and mayhem. The day of the Lord, the seventh day, upon which God rested. Sunday, said Johnny. Sunday. Hang on, Mr. Giggles said nothing. How can it be Sunday? Johnny asked. It's a weekly thing, his mother explained. I love it when you ask me questions that I can actually answer. Yes, said Johnny, but it can't be Sunday. It must be... And then he had a bit of a think. And something seemed to be missing. It must be... Hold on, 
He scratched once more at his head. What have you done to your hair? asked his mother. I don't remember, said Johnny. Well, that's just careless. You should always put hair care at the very forefront of your thoughts. People see your hair coming before they see you. Well, they do if you're walking backwards anyway. My last recollection is of last Monday, I think. I had that farmer's market in the loft thing again, but it passed and I'm better now. That's the last memory I have. And now it's Sunday. That can't be right. Now that you mention it, said Johnny's mum, half turning once more, although this time employing a double knee maneuver, my memory seems to be somewhat on the blink also. How did you manage to grow that magnificent beard overnight, by the way? Johnny Hooker stroked at his chin. Something is not right here. Well, if it's not right here, said his mum, then it must be somewhere else. Johnny Hooker looked bewildered. Johnny Hooker was bewildered. I have hat hair, he said, and a five-day growth of beard and about five days missing out of my life. I have a pair of surgical stockings, said Johnny's mum, a dropped womb and a Dutch cap that I haven't used in a decade, and you think you have problems. Johnny Hooker rose from the breakfast table. Something is wrong, he declared. Something is very wrong. Mr. Giggles' voice spoke at his ear. Everything is a-okay, said Mr. Giggles. You're just having an episode. Say nothing more to your mother. You wouldn't want her to have you banged up in the loony bin again, would you? No, said Johnny. I wouldn't. Wouldn't what? asked Johnny's mum, who was now fully turned and contorted into such a curious leg-linkage affair that it looked possible that she might remain in this fashion forevermore. Nothing said Johnny, making us to leave, and then somehow tangling parts of his lower self amongst the tablecloth, with the result that it was torn from the table, tumbling cutlery and crockery and orange juice in a glass, the Sunday paper and the cornflakes packet also, and the maker's name was misspelt. The previously unmentioned cornflakes packet struck the linoleum floor, which prompted a remark from Johnny's mother that men were a bit like linoleum in that if you lay them right the first time, you can walk all over them for the next ten years. Nice. And I'll thank you to clean that up, she continued. Sorry, all right, said Johnny. No, sod her, don't, said Mr. Giggles. I made the mess, I'll clean it up, said Johnny. Precisely, said his mum. Don't, said Mr. Giggles. Don't be silly, said Johnny. What, said his mum. Johnny found the dustpan and brush and took to dustpan and brushing. Nothing, he said. Stick it in the pedal bin, said Mr. Giggles. The pedal bin is always full, said Johnny. Pedal bins are always full. The only time they're empty is when you buy them. Why are you saying this? asked Johnny's mum, trying in vain to untangle her legs. Sorry, said Johnny. I'll put all these swept up cornflakes in the dustbin. Don't you do it, said Mr. Giggles. Stick up for yourself, you little wuss. Little wuss? Who are you calling a marsupial? asked Johnny's mum. No one, not me, said Johnny, and he vacated the kitchen. Don't do it, said Mr. Giggles. Johnny was in the alleyway now, the one that ran down the side of the house, the one with the dustbin in it. Toss it to the four winds, said Mr. Giggles. Let the squirrels eat it. I am reliably informed, said Johnny, that squirrels are just rats with good PR. You'll probably get sued for that, said Mr. Giggles. Let's go to the mall and play Pooh, you're a smelly one, with the old folk. Oh, behave yourself. 
And Johnny lifted the dustbin lid. And Johnny beheld. And Johnny fell back. And Johnny cried, ah And Johnny nearly fainted. Chapter 39 And what was the cause of this how-do-you-do? This all falling back and nearly fainting? Why, t'was the sight of what lie within, the bin, and it weren't no oil painting. What? Johnny Hooker peered into the dustbin's innards, cast aside the lid, and delved in. There was a park ranger's uniform, complete with a cap lined with tinfoil. There was a laptop, a slim metal cylinder that appeared to be a whistle of some kind, and a lot of what looked to be used elastoplast dressings. Plague! Plague! cried Mr. Giggles, loudly and somehow into both of Johnny's ears at the same time. Don't touch those dirty things. You'll get polluted. You'll get the lurgy. I think not. And Johnny Hooker snatched up the cap and rammed it onto his head. And back in a great tsunami wave, thoughts came crashing back, breaking over dams and breakwaters, sea defenses and sandbags, the memories of the days gone before, of all that had gone before and all that had happened to Johnny. And ow, cried Johnny, clutching at this cap. You silly boy, said Mr. Giggles. Silly boy, I did it for you, to save you, to spare you. You tricked me. Johnny was pulling out the park ranger's uniform. He had torn off his dressing gown and was now standing all nude in the alleyway. Somehow you got me to take off this cap with the tinfoil lining. And then what? How was it done? The heirloom gang? Beaming messages into my unprotected head? Wiping my memory? That's what happened, isn't it? I did it for you. I hate you, said Johnny. I really hate you. I did it for you, to keep you out of danger. Johnny's head was all banging about. He scrambled his way into the trousers, put two legs down the same leg hole, and fell all down on his sorry naked arse. See what I mean? Mr. Giggles jigged about on his furry feet. You fall over and hurt yourself. You're better off with me looking after you, caring for you, seeing that you come to no harm. See this hat? said Johnny, floundering about, yet pointing to his cap with unerring accuracy. This is going to stay upon my head, come what may, for as long as it takes. As long as it takes to do what? The talks, cried Johnny, making it to his knees and doing up his uniform trousers. The secret talks in the big house at Gunnersbury Park. The secret talks that could determine whether the world lives or dies. Well, those, said Mr. Giggles. Yes, those, said Johnny, and he fished the park ranger's jacket from the dustbin. Keep out of that, that's my advice. Johnny glared daggers at Mr. Giggles. I don't care about your advice, he told the jigging monkey boy. I know enough now to know what must be done. Those secret talks amongst the controllers, the secret council that really controls the world. I know that there are others who would control them, the heirloom gang. Huh, went Mr. Giggles. Not, huh, no. Johnny fished into the jacket pocket and drew out the brass key. The brass key with the date of 1790 upon it and the words Acme Heirloom Company also. Real, said Johnny, all real. Not some figment of my imagination. Like me, said Mr. G. I don't know what you are. 
Johnny Hooker was now fully uniformed. I don't know what you are, and I do not care. I do now know what my purpose in life is. It is for me to ensure that the secret talks go ahead unmolested. They might well still lead to us all getting blown up. I think not, said Johnny, taking up the laptop and examining it. James Crawford's laptop, with the recording of Robert Johnson's 30th composition upon it. When you had me bunging all this in the dustbin, and how did you do that, by the way? While I was drunk, I suppose. Easy meat then, eh? Take off your cap and sling it away, Johnny boy. It's ruining your hair. I can just imagine. Anyway, when you made me bung all this in the dustbin, you should have had me smash this laptop. Very careless of you there. Hmm, went Mr. Giggles. You could have had your breakfast without spilling all the cornflakes. Then all would have been well. All will be well, said Johnny, tucking the laptop into his poacher's pocket of the park ranger's jacket. When I've dealt with everything. You, went Mr. Giggles. You. You're Johnny Hooker, no mark loser. Who do you think you are? Johnny Hooker, savior of mankind? You're not. You're no one. Stay out of it. It has nothing to do with you. Oh, said Johnny. Oh. I didn't mean it, said Mr. Giggles. It just slipped out. Sorry. You meant it. Johnny was now sticking the used elastoplasts back onto his face. No, please don't do that. That's disgusting. That looks really naff. I don't want to be recognized. I'm working undercover. Johnny Hooker, secret agent. Mr. Giggles groaned. And I'm not talking to you. I only did it to protect you. I don't want any harm to come to you. It's all got too dangerous. Too many people have died. Well, I am involved, and I'm staying involved. So what do you think you can do? Thwart the plans of the heirloom gang. There is no heirloom gang. Get real, Johnny, please. I have the key. Johnny flourished it. And the whistle. Johnny flourished this also. Although I don't as yet know the significance of the whistle. But these items are all the proof I need. The gang exists, and they will try to influence the speakers at the secret talks and I will thwart their evil schemes. This is my purpose. This, I now know, is what my life is for. The reason for my being. My existence. I will wage war upon the forces of evil that seek to control, indeed possibly even to annihilate, mankind. War, I say, and I alone will wage it. Get a grip, buddy boy. And don't you buddy boy me. Well, will you listen to yourself? You're not James Bond. You're Johnny Hooker. Nice chap, really, but a little misguided. Go back inside, have breakfast, read the Sunday papers, go down to the pub and have a pint at lunchtime and... Pint? said Johnny. At the mailman? said Johnny. Yes, why not? Because I understood... Because I understood from you that I was barred from there for nobbing O'Fagan's wife. Ah, said Mr. Giggles. Well, and now I recall that she ran off with the traveler and tobaccos, said Johnny. You wanted to keep me away from there because you knew that O'Fagan would say stuff to me that might make me remember what had happened over the last few days. Not a bit of it, said Mr. Giggles, crossing his heart and hoping not to die. And this cap, Johnny pointed to the item in question. This cap and its foil lining are all the proof that I need. With it on, I remember everything. 
and with it off, Mr. Giggles mimed the removal of Johnny's unfetching headwear. No way, said Johnny. It's staying on. It blocks out the heirloom broadcasts that are directed at my head. I know that, and you know that. I know no such thing. I'm not talking to you anymore, said Johnny. I am going to get this job jobbed all by myself. Paul might like to help, said Mr. Giggles, if you're adamant. I'll do it on my own. I will endanger no one else's life. You'll never get back in the park, Johnny boy. It's ringed around by policemen with big weapons. They've dug landmines into the pitch and putt and everything. And how would you know that? I might be guessing, Mr. Giggles suggested. Yes, you might. Once assured that there was nothing else pertinent lurking around in the dustbin, Johnny replaced its lid. So, said Mr. Giggles, breakfast, the papers, then a pint. No, said Johnny Hooker. Mr. Giggles gave another groan. War, cried Johnny Hooker.